day, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time or for the first time in a while, the focus of my podcast is information that I share on my website blog. So how do you find my blog? From your favorite web browser, navigate to my website, www.copperrangellc.com and click blog, which appears along the top of the landing page for my website. If you access my site on a mobile device, you probably know that if you click the three-line menu icon, which is usually in the upper right, you can get your options there. So my blog posts have the great photos behind the stories. You definitely want to make a stop to my webpage so you can check those out. It's free to view. It's free to read. It's free to listen. Also on my website, you can view all my images. You can learn about me and you can keep up with my art show schedule. At my art shows, you'll find my work for purchase. It's a great way to shop my photography in person and meet me. You can also shop safely and easily online. Just click the buy icon on any photo and you'll be on your way to an easy and safe shopping experience and join the ranks of my collectors. Today's podcast is titled Spread Ideas That Work. My podcast listeners and followers know that I'm now a professional photographer and I'm committed to wildlife conservation and protection. Um, but I'm so happy and excited and honored to be thinking about my EPA career today as I talk with a very special guest, Katie Butler, who was the director of the water product line when I was the assistant inspector general. Katie held a number of other positions at EPA, including serving as the acting assistant inspector general for a time. The other big news I was recently delighted to learn about is that Katie has launched a new business. It's called the Geo Literacy Project, LLC. This is since she has left her position at EPA. You can find the Geo Literacy Project on the web at geoliteracy.com. The Geo Literacy Project's mission statement reads... We help environmental leaders optimize their programs and maximize their results. We advise on the best science, strategy, and management techniques to help you save the earth faster. I love that. So, you know, if you're managing or leading any business that's expected or required to show environmental results, you really want to check this out and listen. So let's talk with Katie and spread ideas that work. Welcome, Katie. Here we are running our own businesses and getting a chance to talk about it. What led you to the Geoliteracy Project? Thank you, Carolyn, and I'm so excited to talk to you about this. It's great to see how life has brought us back together here. Um, I actually owe much of my strategic thinking ability to learning from you on the job when you led the evaluation group in the OIG, so thank you for helping prepare me for this next step. Uh, so I created the Geoliteracy Project to help influence evidence-focused environmental programming to get better results. As you mentioned, I led the EPA Inspector General's Water Oversight Group previously, and that was truly a dream job for me. Um, I love my colleagues there, and the work of overseeing EPA's Drinking Water and Clean Water Act projects was a perfect fit for my educational background and interests. But this summer I decided I wanted to broaden my impact beyond EPA. So here's an example. As you know, I had the important responsibility of directing our oversight of the Flint, Michigan drinking water crisis. 
I had a remarkable team of true experts and we had this important and opportunity and weighty responsibility to help EPA make sure the crisis wouldn't happen again in other towns. So we traveled to Flint and we hosted residents one-on-one to listen to their stories at the outset. And that was because this situation was really about people and families. And I felt pleased that we were able to give these residents a voice. Many of them had spoken up in the past and hadn't felt heard. We also dug deep into the history of drinking water in Flint. And as a result of all of the work that we did, EPA took several steps, including making changes to the lead and copper rule. And though there's a ways to go, I believe our work did help compel the agency to make positive changes. Um, But a common theme in Flint and in all of my work in the OIG was that there was almost always data available to predict success or failure. In Flint, the state and the EPA had plenty of information showing that there might be issues developing from residents and from drinking water surveys. So something that happens outside of the government in the environmental field is that funders tend to like new shiny ideas. They want you to find the next, invent the next best mousetrap. So what I'm trying to do in the geoliteracy project is kind of pull in the opposite direction. I'm asking, can we get funders to provide resources for duplicating the proven strategies, the best strategies? So what I'm doing is blogging about data and evidence and talking to people about setting up monitoring and evaluation systems so they can make their programs more effective and also helping people set up new programs that really plagiarize the most successful strategies out there. Such a valuable focus on what's working in environmental programs. So Katie, how do you define geo-literate? Reading every issue of the National Geographic from cover to cover. No, I think I think to be geo-literate means to me that you can not only read the planet, knowing the names of the trees and the birds and the rock formations and such, but you can also understand the connections between them. In the discipline of geography, the common thread is place. So whether you're looking at disadvantaged communities, climate change impacts, urban planning, satellite data, citing a restaurant, the discipline of geography urges you to first ask about the important role that your specific spot on the globe plays. And, you know, thinking this through, I I think that Geoliteracy Project probably started when I was in college 25 years ago. As I started understanding the concept of ecology, how an an ecosystem evolves over millennia so that the pieces all work in coordination to keep the system going, this helped me understand how the world worked in a consistent and meaningful way. I started giving talks to groups on campus about (laughs) their connections to the natural environment and how they could take small steps to make less of an impact. So to me, interconnectedness is the basis of understanding in the world and understanding the planet itself is geoliteracy. There are so many ways we can all lessen our impact on the planet. So next question, what, Katie, should we know about the Geoliteracy Project? Well, the purpose of the company, um, of the Geoliteracy Project for me, is to really help people understand how the planet works and study how we can most effectively undo the damage we as humans have done. So that means an essential component is education-based, understanding and spreading the word about what works and what doesn't in the world of environmental programs. Um, So I've set up the company so that it takes three paths to get environmental results. 
The first is strategy and evaluation. And this is consulting work to help people figure out what works and why, find ways to do more of that stuff that works. The second path is training, um, just straight up education, uh, but specifically around building good environmental programs. So I'm helping people learn why evidence building is important for environmental programs, how to go through a strategic planning process, what program evaluation is, and how it's different in the environmental sector. And also importantly, how to pivot and adapt as you get along, as you go along <laughs> to get the best possible results. Um, the third path is research. And um, this is what I spoke about a moment ago. This is the the effort I'm making to find the best environmental programs out there and replicate them. So this involves me talking to a lot of people, reading a lot of articles, um, seeking things out in the news, having a lot of conversations about what environmental programs are uh, working, what programs people are very proud of, and which ones have um, good evidence that they're making an impact, and then figuring out how we can replicate the best of those. So this last point on having evidence of impact, evidence of what works in environmental programs, such an important, very, very important issue and topic. I noticed on your website that you have a area where folks can submit actually success stories that looks like it helps feed this collection of knowledge that you're putting together on evidence of impact and what works. So that's a really terrific resource. So for those folks listening, if you have a success story in your environmental program, visit Geoliteracy, the Geoliteracy Project, and you can submit a success story. So Katie, next question. Um, I'm obviously familiar, uh, very familiar with the kinds of projects and certainly the challenges that you and, you know, we worked on at EPA. How did that influence the Geoliteracy Project? Well, our work at EPA is a very strong influence. Like I said, that really was my dream job. I love that work and I'm very proud of the things we accomplished when we were there. I believe that others out here, outside of the government running environmental programs also need to get as good as they possibly can at, su at succeeding. And I think that the skills I learned at EPA are a big part of the method to doing that. Our program evaluation program in the OIG was continually in flux, <laughs> but one thing remained consistent throughout. We always wanted to get as close to learning the outcomes of EPA programs as we could. And that relentless focus on the result of a program, while it was frustrating to us and definitely to the people running the programs, it enabled us to identify the common characteristics of programs that did reach success. So I talked about the OIG work in Flint, and there are so many other examples of how the work at the EPA OIG taught me and ideally led to improvements in the EPA and importantly kept Congress informed about what works and what doesn't. Um, another important lesson that I take with me from the OIG that's applicable anywhere is that most people want to do the best thing. So the key for me is assuming that we share similar goals, in my case, saving the earth faster, and then finding the best ways to work together to achieve these. An example from this at the OIG was the work we did after Hurricanes Irma and Maria hit Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, before they made landfall on the mainland. 
um, everyone really saw tragic results from those hurricanes through the news, particularly on access to safe water and sanitation in Puerto Rico. There was a big problem of power outages that was connected to the safe water provision and sanitation. Um, EPA at the time was extremely troubled by what had transpired. And um, so we went in and we were able to make an independent assessment of what happened and why the existing preparations, which were pretty extensive, were not sufficient in this case. And then we were able to work closely with EPA to identify new ways that EPA could support the small rural communities, particularly in Puerto Rico, and help them be more resilient when the next storm arrived. Um, and I, I want to say this was hard-hitting independent oversight, but at the same time, we worked very hard to develop and maintain relationships with all the stakeholders we met so that we could all row the boat in the same direction, which in this case was toward better human health protection during the next storm. The EPA Office of Inspector General was often involved in um, doing oversight of EPA's responses to natural disasters or other environmental emergencies. I can recall from my years at the agency that they were all hard-hitting oversight, but also with a level of cooperation uh, from the agency who was, of course, motivated to ensure that those projects were handled properly. It's very important work. So Katie, I know that you are a supporter of drone technology and the benefits it can provide. So I had to mention that I have a drone. It's a small recreational use only drone. And as you know, the FAA regs are a bit complex as they should be if you want to operate a drone for commercial use. So I'm sticking to recreational use for now. Someday I may do the commercial license. You know, drones are a lot of fun. And to my surprise, they bounce back very well from crashes because I have crashed mine once or twice. Actually, you don't do that usually more than once or twice once you figure that out. But importantly, uh, really importantly, drone mapping and monitoring can provide highly valuable data and information. What are your thoughts on drones? Well, this is exciting. I picked up my first drone during the pandemic lockdown, and I now have four. Or actually, I have three. I sold one. Um, I did get my FAA license, and I do recommend it. I think knowing the FAA rules is valuable. <laughs> People always ask questions when I'm out there with a drone, and it's also nice to be able to use the drone professionally when it makes sense. Another key here, another good tip, is the nicer the drone, the better the anti-collision package. So I also crashed one of my drones <laughs> right off the bat, but my nicer drones just will not crash, luckily for me. Um, I'm actually giving an overview talk at this year's American Evaluation Association meeting in November on using drones for environmental program evaluation. Um, you might remember I studied satellite remote sensing uh, when I was in my geography master's program. And my thesis for that program was about detecting changes in wetlands using Landsat data, um, which had an accuracy of, you know, between five and 10 meters, basically. The amazing thing with drones is that whenever I put a drone up there, I'm basically flying my very own personal satellite with extraordinarily high resolution, like two centimeters. So uh, drones can also, you can put a multi-spectral camera on a drone or a thermal sensor on a drone and collect even more really high quality, high resolution, um, repeatable ecological information. And it's at a fraction of the cost in time and dollars of 
getting satellite information and doing that kind of an analysis. So actually, I have an example, which is from your neck of the woods, which is the Upper Potomac Riverkeeper. So Brent Walls, the riverkeeper up there, started experimenting with a drone to identify water pollution sources. After a storm, they could see plumes of um, sediment moving down the river. He did some mapping and was collecting some other data. Well, it comes it comes it comes about that in April of this year, so just about six months ago, with help from um, the Environmental Integrity Project in DC, um, his work with his drone led to a settlement where the owners of a closed mill agreed to clean up the mill site, pay $650,000 in penalties and fines to the state of Maryland for pollution that came from the site, and pay $50,000 to Potomac Riverkeeper Network so they can conduct monitoring and sampling and make sure that the pollution from the site doesn't continue. It's a great example of using brand new technology to get actionable, in this case, legally sufficient environmental data. So impressed to hear you have your FAA drone license. That's not an easy thing. It's almost just like getting a pilot's license. So congratulations, Katie. And good luck with the talk at the upcoming uh, AEA conference on drone technology. That's terrific. So two more questions for the podcast today. One, you just launched your company uh, a few months ago. Can you share any perspective on what your clients are striving for? Well, I am just getting started. So I know this may change over time. The folks I'm currently working with are looking for two major things for their environmental work, strategic direction and better environmental impact. Um, I'm working with a lot of new or smaller organizations um, and those new small organizations or programs with new programs, people starting new programs really want to start out on the right foot. They're, you know, they're not doing this work because they're bored. <laughs> they really want to make a difference. So we've, we talk about aligning their vision and mission and strategy so that they can talk about their programs with confidence and design them in a way that will lead to those intended results to getting closer to their organizational vision. I spent a good deal of time working on logic models, which, as you know, are a great tool for helping people create and maintain that, that alignment between program activities and goals. And then the second thing, people really want to see the impacts themselves. They want more information about, you know, what they do all day and whether it's working. And they also want and need to show their impacts to their funders and their stakeholders. So, Carolyn, we know how challenging this can be, even for big government programs with lots of data and lots of funding. Um, but showing impacts for smaller organizations also requires really thoughtful monitoring and evaluation planning, some data mining, and some sort of a management scheme, like a data dashboard that you can glance at every day or every week um, to see how you're doing. And then, of course, once you start seeing the data, then you have to use it to pivot and improve. What I really liked is working with people who are fully invested in this last part of the equation, people who want to see the good, the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> and then they want to work to make it better, to make it all the good stuff. Well, as things change, if they change, Katie, with your new project, you're always welcome to come back and talk about anything you'd like on the podcast. So... For our last question or comment, if you will, um, you know, Katie, I worked with you for years on highly challenging, complex, and really difficult issues. I know firsthand how confident your client should be in working with you. 
Is there anything else that we should know about the Geoliteracy Project? Well, as you know, I do love things that are challenging, complex, and difficult. Um, I like to think of the Geoliteracy Project as an effort to use physical science along with proven program strategies and evaluation skills to solve those particularly complex environmental issues. And, you know, we know that environmental issues are complicated to understand in terms of cause and effect. Um, and that makes them complicated to resolve, especially with all the confounding factors involved. But I believe firmly and I have seen that it is very possible to make excellent progress. Um, I think that's my take home message. It is possible to save the earth faster. Well said, Katie. It is possible to save the earth faster. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. You know, what an important and valuable mission the Geoliteracy Project has, providing the tools, the resources, the experience, and the know-how to save the earth faster using time-tested methods. Please visit geoliteracy.com to learn more get some free tools and resources, or you can actually schedule a free consultation with Katie. Thank you for listening today. Have a great day.